This week on Writers Inc. You gotta know enough about the story to start. That's essentially it. And so for my novels, you have to know the beginning. You know, how they begin, you have to know how the characters meet. You have to know the conflict that keeps the characters from being together because there's always, there's always has to be a conflict because if there's no conflict, they meet and that's it. They fall in love. That's the story. And you're like, there's no story there. Ask, look, Rome, I didn't, it's these are my rule. Shakespeare, Romeo and Juliet, you know, the whole families hated each other, right? You've got to have a conflict. Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out, school's in session. This is Writer's In. Okay, everyone, welcome uh, to a bonus episode. This might have been a surprise in your feed. If you were expecting Eric Rickstad, don't worry. He is coming as planned and as scheduled in the next episode. But uh, as you're going to find out in a moment, we have a very special guest, something that kind of came together at the, in the last minute. And so we're excited to bring it to you on an off day. So, J.D., tell us about this very special bonus episode. I, I feel like we need theme music for these extra bonus episodes. <laughs> like dun, 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 something, something really cool, like a nice drum beat or something. Um, we've got Nicholas Sparks. Um, and this is going to be very cool. I mean, obviously, he's a you know one of the big hitters out there. I mean, I was just looking at his stats. I mean, all, all his books have been New York Times bestsellers. He's got 105 million copies sold out there. He's in more than 50 languages. Um, just an, an insane back catalog. Um, and it's like, I, I don't even know at this point like how many movies and, and things along those lines. But um, you know, this is one of those guys that just has the career I think every writer kind of aspires to. Um, and we're getting the chance to pull back the curtain and kind of take a, a peek behind it and see how he actually got there, which is it's going to be fascinating. I can't wait for this one. Um, so here he is, Nicholas Sparks. When was the last time you slam dunked a basketball? Uh, it's probably about 37, 38 really? years old. Yeah. Uh, I was pretty, pretty good. Uh, pretty good until then. And then, uh, I think I, w- I was 38 when I tore my calf muscle oh. and that led to the end of my high, higher than usual jumping days. <laughs> I'm just impressed. Even in your thirties, you were able to do that. That, uh, that takes some skill. Well, yeah, I've done it a long time. And once <laughs> you've done it, you know, you, you kind of get the hang of it too. Right. Right. Well, we're not here to talk about your NBA prospects. Uh, you have a, a great new book out called the wish and, uh, I'm not going to reveal anything. We won't, we won't spoil anything, but, uh, wow. What a powerful ending. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the book and, um, sort of the overview? Sure. Yeah. Uh, the Wish was a novel that was uh, more than 20 years in the making, uh, which is unusually long for the conception of a novel. Um, you know, I've had long novels before the wedding took about, I don't know, five or six years. The wedding was, of course, a follow up to the notebook. And after I'd finished the notebook, I, that was it. I had no story after that. That was a one and done book. But people love the notebook so much. They said, well, when are you going to do a sequel? And I'm like, 
sequel? What are you talking about? I mean, didn't you read the book? We're at the end of their lives. There's not much more we can do here. But little by little, that one, so that took years to figure out. But, you know, I'd always wanted to do, probably since uh, the end of novel number three, A Walk to Remember, a story about a a 16-year-old or 15, 16-year-old girl who gets pregnant and decides to give the baby up for adoption. It was just a concept that interested it, that interested me. I, I thought the character could be interesting and the, and the concept is this and uh, the concept, like I said, for whatever reason, it drew my attention. But for years and years and years, I couldn't come up with a story. It, it was just as simple as that. Uh, you know, every, I didn't want to do what they did in Juno. I didn't want, do, want to do what they did in other books or, or anything else. So I said, how do I make this original? And the answer wouldn't come. So uh, I wrote a different book. I wrote The Rescue. And then after I finished The Rescue, I thought about this concept again. No idea. So I wrote A Bend in the Road. So one after the other. And it wasn't until, you know, recently that the idea kind of began to mesh together into a Uh, an overall story arc that I thought would work. And that came about because it had to do with the second theme I'd been interested in exploring. You know, if you're an American novelist, uh, I think you should do a couple of a, a couple of different stories in the course of your career. You should do a dog story. Right. I did a dog story with uh, The Guardian, but right. Almost all everyone's read where the red fern grows or old Geller. Right. Jack London did Call of the Wild. Right. You know, Stephen King did Cujo. You know, you're supposed to write a dog story. So I did that. The other thing I think you should write is a Christmas story of some kind. You know, Grisham's done a Christmas story. We all know Dickens is the best, but you want to throw your hat into that ring and say, hey, can I write a story that people might want to revisit every year? So the combination of these two ideas, a little bit about Christmas and this 16-year-old girl, when those ideas kind of clang together, the story began to unfold. So that's a little bit about the background. So you want to know what's about? Hey, you know what it is, basically. (laughs) But there's a lot more to it than just that. Absolutely. Uh, Your decision in in using Maggie Dawes at two times in her life was was um, very resonant. It was it, very um, emotionally uh, connective. Can you talk about your decision to to tell her her sixteen year old story in the year of nineteen ninety six? Was there any significance to that year or that time? No, of course, you know, you can always think of significant things. It was the year the notebook was published. Let's start with that. But that really had nothing to. Um, do with the reason I chose 1996. It had more to do with how old is she now? And then how old would she have been back then? And what year was that? Sometimes making decisions in writing is less creative than simply analytical and looking at a calendar and going backwards or something like that. Um, So, uh, but I agree, right? Um, We explore Maggie in two different parts of her life. First, she's 39. It's the Christmas season. And she reflects on the story of when she's 16 and she was pregnant and decided to give the baby up for adoption. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, beauty in those kinds of stories because you're allowed to see the events that shaped a character's life for starters and then also know the profound impact on them throughout the the rest of their lives. And so that's why it was neat to me, you know, to, to see the woman that Maggie is at 39 or 40, and then to see 
who she'd been at 16. And, and to me, that, that provides a, a more complete story. But I also think it resonates at least on a, a human level, because that's how we know so many of the important people in our lives, whether it's our children. We, we knew them as infants and toddlers, and we see them at 15 or 16, and then as young adults. You know, you see your parents as young adults, and then you see them as they age. You see your cousins or your nephews or even old friends, right? You might have friends that you knew from way back when, elementary school or high school, and you still keep in contact with them. And you say, I remember who you were then, and I see who you are now. And, you know, to me, that's always a, 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 a neat experience because in the mind's eye, you're able to see all of who they are at once. And, I, and, I, and I've always enjoyed that experience. It's a, it's a very complete experience. It's very well-rounded. So I, I, I agree with that. Yeah. I, I know you're, you're, uh, you have a preference for using small, small North Carolina towns in your, in your works. Uh, uh, but Ocracokie is a, is a unique one. My brother has a place in Kill Devil Hill, so I'm somewhat familiar with the Outer Banks. And, and I know there's a number of communities all along the, the, the barrier uh, island there. Why that one in particular? Well, okay. Uh, again, some of that was analytical. Some of that was, uh, yeah, I guess a lot of it was analytical. So let's start with I'd already written a novel set in Rodanthe in the upper Outer Banks. And Rodanthe's near Buxton. It's south of Kill Devil Hills, but it's right there in the middle. So then there's starters. So when I had the question, and this takes a bit of the romance away from writing, but it is true that writing is in both a left brain and a right brain process. But if you have a 16 year old girl who's pregnant, um, why doesn't she take the other option other than adoption? Right? And so my answer to that became because she's from a very Catholic family. And so she did the old fashioned Catholic thing. Okay, so you start with that. That makes sense. That's why abortion was not even a question. Their family, it just wasn't even considered. All right, but if you have a very Catholic family, this is a, and they're very Catholic, you know they go to church and the parents would send her to someone who's also very Catholic. Hence, hey, it was a former nun. So then the question became, where on earth is there a Catholic church anywhere in the Outer Banks? And there are none. Quite simply, that's the answer. There are none. You go all the there, there just aren't any. So, okay. So if you're in Ocracoke, you know, Ocracoke was near enough to Moorhead City with a reasonable, you know, ferry schedule that you say, okay, this aunt could still go to church every single weekend. So it kind of came to that. Plus, yeah, I've been to Ocracoke. I love Ocracoke. It's a it's got a different feel than a lot of the other parts of the Outer Bank. Uh, outer banks, uh, which are so austere, and uh, it, it's it, it is its own full complete village, basically as limited though it may be. I'm fascinated by some of the old fishermen there who who speak the brogue, uh, and and some of the names they have for the outsiders. Uh, I, I was going to call you a dingbat earlier, but I don't want to insult you. But uh, <laughs> did you hear dingbatter used at all in, in Ocracoke? Well, of course, it was used in uh, it was used in the 
in the novel. And that's what it is, right? They speak with this hoitoid or brogue. And (laughs) it is really difficult to understand when you get some of these, these people. And for those who don't have any idea what you or I are talking about, the islands in the Outer Banks, uh, as well as some of the islands in Virginia and the islands of Maine, were settled by people who were largely um, separated from the mainland for hundreds of years. You know, they could get there, but it wasn't an easy boat trip. And so they built these isolated communities and they brought with them the, the brogues they had from Scotland and Ireland and all these other places. And then they all kind of mixed together into this hoitoiter type language. So if you want to hear what it looks like, you just go to go to YouTube. <laughs> you can literally Google hoitoiter, H-O-I-T-O-I-D-E-R, you know, Outer Banks or Maine. And then you can hear what the brogue actually sounds like. And I don't know. It, it, it's a very interesting and sometimes incomprehensible thing to hear. I, I love uh, that decision. I mean, I know that, you know, as you described it, it seemed very practical, but it, it really worked with the story too. It, you know, that, that, that village being so isolated, even from the rest of the Outer Banks, really played into this symbolic uh, notion of Maggie being isolated from, from her family and from everything she knew at home and being sort of transplanted into this community and even in a community where she knew she wasn't going to be staying. I think that that was sort of another element to it that I thought um, really made it very multidimensional. Sure. Well, thank you. You know, I think a first chapter regarding 16 year old Maggie was, was entitled marooned, which is exactly how she felt, right? Just cast away to this Island that is unlike any place else she's ever been or seen. And she's living with a, a relative that she doesn't know very well. And as you said, she knows it's temporary. And how does one adapt in that situation, let alone if one is pregnant, you've left your friends behind, your family behind, the world you know behind, and it and it puts you and it can put you into a dark and gloomy place, which is of course exactly where Maggie at sixteen begins the story. And I know this is getting into a bit of the the magical element of of storytelling, but I'm I'm just uh, really in awe of your ability to channel the voice of a sixteen year old pregnant girl in nineteen ninety six. Was there anything that you did, anything you read, anything that you watched? I mean, I know you have children as well, but is there anything that helped you craft her voice in that way? Um, just some general rules regarding teenagers that we all know that uh, that there are moments when they converge on melodrama. See, things aren't bad. They're they're the most awful things ever. And, you know, your parents just aren't unfair. They're the most unfair parents in the world. You know, there is a tendency to occasionally go down that road. So you start with that. And then you start with uh, some of the other general laws, right? Uh, They can be insecure about who they are or what they're going to do and feel behind, feel uh, compared to others who seem to on the surface, no more about where they're going in line in life. And then you, uh, what else do you throw in? Then you toss in uh, the ability to surprise because of course I had teenagers and there are moments when they can surprise you 
with their maturity, when you're really proud of something they did. So you mix all that together. And, and of course, I have had daughters and, you know, I dated 16 year old girls once. So I, I, I kind of know how they sound, or I like to think I know how they talk. <laughs> did you vet it with any of your, any of your daughters ahead of time? Or is it you past that point of, uh, of, of help? <laughs> No, I, I don't vet uh, with anyone but my agent. She's yeah. the only one that the agent and then the editors. And if I can get the book by these three people, because I had two editors and, and an agent, and they're all really, really good at what they do, which is uh, making a story as helping to make a story as high quality as possible. If I can get it by them, I'm happy. And that's it. Yeah. I read a, in an older interview that you wrote 2,000 words a day and you, you, that was between 10 a.m. and 3.30 p.m. I know routines and, and systems change over time. Is, is that still your, your writing routine? Uh, for the most part, whenever I sit down to write, I still go for 2,000 words. The times vary. Sometimes I started a little later. Today, I started at uh, uh, early, probably about 7.45 or 7.30, and I've been working since then, so about five and a half hours. I've got more words done, but today's just a, uh, I'm coming up on the end of a section, so I wanted to get through the end of that section and get a jump start on the next one. So um, today was a little more, but yeah, 2,000 words I find is a reasonable goal. Um, and it, I think that's a goal that every author or every writer has to decide for themselves. But for me, with the types of stories that I write, um, it, it it's fast enough to stay in the appropriate pace of the novel, you know, so that you don't lose the sense of pace as you're writing. Like, oh, this scene needs, I need a little time here. I need a little slow down. Oh, now I need to speed up. So you don't lose your sense of pace, but it's not so many words that you lose uh, the ability to write with any kind of quality. And so it's it's a nice number. I've heard other authors a thousand words a day or 1500 words a day. Other authors try to do pages. Uh, every, every author's uh, uh, way they do it is uh, slightly different, but yeah, that five six hours. It's about as accurate. And do you have a? Uh, is this in your office? Is this on a laptop? Is this uh, a legal pad? What What does your first drafting process look like? Always on a computer. Uh, always typing uh, and lots and lots of editing all along the way. So on days I'm not writing. Often I'm editing what I've written before. So, you know, I'll go through every every page numerous times, not only during the day when I'm writing, but you know, the following day or three days later. And then I edit up to two two chapters, then I edit a section, you know. So you so on days I'm not writing, I'm I'm continually trying to improve what I have written. Because sometimes to keep moving, to keep the pace going, it's easy to get a little bit lazy in your writing um, in various moments in the course of a, a sentence. You're just trying to keep your thoughts going. So you put something in that, that works, but maybe it's not the freshest writing, for instance. Um, and that, okay, let me use an example, um, like stage direction. Okay, stage direction. You might have your character, he says something, she paused, or she glanced away, then came back. And that's, you know, she glanced away before coming back to him again. That's fine. But in the first draft of a novel, I might've said that six times. So I'll go through and remove 
five of them. But I just put those in because it feels right in that moment while I'm writing. And then it allows me to go into the next sentence and the end of the paragraph and then the following paragraph, because I know that some of those, that I'll be able to fix all of those things later and I'll pick and choose. And I actually do those kinds of edits. It keeps you from bogging down. That's exactly right. Um, I, I know that you don't, uh, you're not a pantser. You don't just show up to a blank page, but you're also not an outliner. You don't create an outline. So what is your, what is your preparation process before you start the drafting? You got to know enough about the story to start. That's essentially it. And so for my novels, you have to know the beginning, you know, how they begin. You have to know how the characters meet. You have to know the conflict that keeps the characters from being together because there's always there's always has to be a conflict because if there's no conflict, they meet and that's it. They fall in love. That's the story. And you're like, there's no story there. Ask, look, Rome, I didn't, it's things in my rule, Shakespeare, Romeo and Juliet, you know, the whole families hated each other, right? You've got to have a conflict. It was, this, you've got to have that. So how they meet, you've got to have the conflict. You've got to know a little bit about the characters, but just thumbnail sketches, their age, um, maybe what they do for a living, um, um, are, and their relationship status. Are they widowed? Are they divorced? Are they, is, are they young? Are they coming off a relationship? Have they not dated in a while? If not, why haven't they dated in a while? So you have to know those things. You have to know, oh, three or four of the major plot turning points. Oh, by this, this happens, and then X, Y, and Z, but only three or so. And then you have to know the ending. You have to know whether the ending is uh, happy, bittersweet, or tragic. And if I know those things, then it's, and I'm pleased with the ideas that I have regarding all those things, and it's, that's what creating a novel is. I'm thinking of all these things. No, that doesn't work. Yes, this works. Oh, that works, but I've done it before, so I can't use it. Oh, that's great, but that was just in a very popular movie, so I can't use that one. Oh, so I'll do this. So once you have all those ideas, you sit down, and after that, your first step is to capture character voice, like Maggie's. First, we capture Maggie's voice at 39, and then we capture Maggie's voice at 16. Yes, that's uh, that, that's that's so interesting because I'm I'm imagining then you're you're cataloging all of this in your head. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You catalog it all in your head because the simple the simple truth is if it's a great idea, you know it and you don't forget it, and you're going to sift through thousands of bad ideas. And they just bounce, you know, sometimes you circle back to them in an OCD way, but they don't work. And you just, there's something instinctual inside me that says, no, that's not going to work. Or yes, that's exactly what this story needs. Did you have to develop that level of trust with yourself? Because I can imagine a lot of writers just not having the confidence to trust that that is a good idea that's going to come back. I don't know. Um, I did it for the notebook, right? Um you know, with the notebook, I was, I had all those things and I was pretty sure that the, uh, that the story would work if I could tell it well. And so much of the work on the notebook was not only the writing, but then the revisions to make sure that it was exactly what I wanted it to be, even before I sent it to the agent. In other words, you're trying to capture young Noah's voice and then older Noah's voice 
are they kind of the same thing I did with Maggie, right? And again, there was just this instinct. Yes, this sounds right. Or no, it doesn't. And let's keep working until it does. This is all, this whole thing, this whole writing thing is very time consuming. And a lot of authors will, will say that, you know, life gets so busy and, and I don't, you know, it's hard for me to find time to write. And you were once quoted as saying that you have to set aside time. You have to have plenty of time for both, meaning your family life and your writing, and you just have to give up something else. Uh, what, what, what was one thing or, or a couple things that you gave up in order to make your writing dreams come true? Happiness. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, that was, a, that was a joke. What's one thing? What's one thing you had to give up? Um, uh, let's see. Um, well, you'll have to give up weekends now and then. Sometimes you give up. Um, just time to relax. How about that? Because if you're stuck on something, if you're stuck on something and you know you have to figure out this particular plot element or something in your novel and you don't know what to do, you know, it, it's very tough on the brain. The brain likes patterns um, and it doesn't like to necessarily have to find something new and original and creative. Um, and, and, but that is what good writing requires. And so it's hard then to step away. So sometimes you, you engage in, in daily life activities when you don't feel like you're always present. You know, for instance, you might be at a soccer game watching your kids play and you find your mind drifting to what am I going to do about this in the book? And it would be nice to be able to say, uh, hey, I'm totally present in this moment and going to enjoy it. Uh, but sometimes it isn't always like that. And of course, look, writing takes time. So you give up certain, you know, you say, I can't work on Saturday. I know we were all going to go or we were hoping to go to the beach for the day. But you know what? We're going to have to go in a, a couple of days after that because I have to do this. So it is basically in some ways just like a job, right? A job requires sacrifice of your time. And so does writing. And whatever you could else be doing that you'd rather be doing, sometimes writing has to take priority. Otherwise, uh, you know, it's conceivable that you never finish the book. Um, you know, they don't write themselves. And there's for every novel that's finished, there are probably 10 started by other people that bog down halfway through because they simply don't devote the time to it. I would have to assume that's an expectation you set as a parent with your children when they're very young so that uh, they sort of understand, they understood what your responsibilities are and, and, and how, you know, they were able to live in a house and have food and clothes. Yeah, well, that's why the hours came out the way they did. I did do my best to work while the kids were uh, at school, right? So I worked during their school hours so that I could coach their soccer teams or, or things like that. But, you know, sometimes it would be, sometimes I do long for a job that I wish I could just set aside at the end of the day, right? Um, you know, but that's just not the way writing is because writing is essentially a concentrated form of thinking. And some people are able to turn it off and on and at whenever they want. I just, I'm, I'm not one of those and I'm not complaining. It's just how my process works. Well, Nicholas, uh, as we wrap up our conversation, I have a hopefully a fun question for you. Uh, you've been 
you've been at the top of the of the industry for a very long time. You've seen a lot of things happening over the decades. We're in a very tumultuous time, not just in publishing, but in, in the world in general. Uh, if you had a crystal ball and you could look out into the future a year or so, what, what, what does publishing look like? Are there any big changes on the horizon or any trends that you're noticing? Well, I, I think... Um... I think there's a big merger going on, maybe. Uh, Simon Schuster, Random House, maybe. So that, of course, is going to change something. It eliminates, you know, if it goes through, then you might have one less publisher. Might might make it a little bit, uh, it's certainly going to change some things in publishing. I don't know what those changes will be, um, other than there, there might be one less major publisher. So if you're brand new and looking for a publisher, you have one less choice. You'll still have the same number of divisions and things like that, but I don't know, maybe that'll affect. Um, you know, the really uh, terrible, you know, COVID was a very trying time for everybody in various ways. And, uh, but one of the things it did do was uh, get people back into reading again. People read a lot of books during COVID, perhaps they, they for whatever reason. Uh, so that was a good thing. And Maybe in a year, you know, that trend has continued as well, which would be great. You know, I'm I'm one of those people who just love books and finding a great book uh, in, a, in a bookstore, one that you've never heard about, then you read it. And it's amazing. Every time that happens, I feel like I've I found a piece of buried treasure and I feel like I want to share it with uh, with with other people who love to read. And it's still remains one of the great joys of my life to discover that that nugget that you didn't even know when you picked it up, it would be as good as it was. You know, it's still a wonderful experience. All right, Nicholas Sparks, man, uh, what a nice guy. Like, I, he's so on brand, <laughs> whether, you know, whether that's intentional or not, just such a nice guy. Um, so many takeaways. Let's start with Zach. Zach, uh, something in the interview that really kind of got your attention or something that uh, you were thinking about. It's funny. There were there were two things that he talked about that I loved and that I uh, I tell people all the time when they ask me author questions. Um, the first one is if you have a great idea, you're not going to forget it. Um, I rarely write down ideas, um, like very very rarely, for that exact reason. Uh, my idea is that if if something is good enough, I'm not gonna, like it's not going to leave my head, and if I forget it. Okay. it wasn't that great of an idea in the first place. So I, I don't beat myself up over that. Now, I mean, I do have a document that has some story ideas and stuff in it, but I can't remember last time I, I added to that. I mean, usually I just try to keep things in my head and I figure they'll come back around when it's time to use them. Uh, so that was, that was one thing. Uh, the other thing I really loved is when he said, uh, you have to give up something talking about if you really want to write, you'll make it happen. Uh, I always tell people, and this goes back to the days when I was a train, a personal trainer. Um, if something's really important to you, you'll never have to make time for it. And uh, my meaning in that was, I, I don't want to say everyone, because I understand some, you know, there's, we'll get an email from a single mother with six kids who tells me she doesn't have time to write. And that's obviously a different situation, but I think most people can find something they could get rid of to make time. You know, you could watch less Netflix. You could, uh, I, I always use the example when I, when I started getting into 
losing weight, training, and then eventually writing. I didn't play video games for seven years. And obviously people with this podcast know I love that, <laughs> you know, and I, but I literally did not touch games for that long. And it wasn't until I became a full-time writer where I was like, oh, now I have time to do something. I'm going to go start doing this again. And uh, so, yeah, I think every, I think most people can find a way. And if you really want to, then you'll sacrifice something else. I, I think honestly for most people, or at least for me, like writing was one of those things that I, I had no problem doing for free. I've done my entire life and it was always, you know, th that one hobby that kind of helped me clear my head, you know, when I was having a rough day or a rough week or whatever, I'd sit down and I would, I would work on the story and then that helped me get through it. Um, you know, getting paid for it is really no different. I mean, it's just a, a blessing. It's a bonus to be able to, to continue doing that. Um, but I think that kind of drive and passion is, is a big part of this and in order to succeed in this business, because you, you need that kind of drive behind you in order to to pile through and, and get to the, the finish line. Um, a lot of people, I think, tend to see writing as, you know, something better than what they're currently doing. It's another option. And, and they, I think they try their hand at it just because of that. It's not something that they totally enjoy, but it's something that's better than what they're currently doing for a day job. And I think those are the ones that tend to try and, and fail and the ones that aren't able to sit down and write every day. You know, they tell themselves that they're a writer, but they only work on Saturdays for, for 20 minutes, that, that kind of thing. But you, I mean, everybody that I know that it's, have, have actually succeeded in this business, they're, they're at their, their desk, you know, four or five, six times a week. They're getting those words done, whether they're getting paid for it or not, because it's something they, they have to do, not something they necessarily want to do. It's something they have to do. There's a big difference. Yeah, Nicholas made a great joke when uh, his, his immediate response was happiness. That's what you have to give up. But, but you know, in a way, like <laughs> I was thinking about that afterwards, and that's not entirely a joke. Like, I, I, I mean, I know he was making a joke, but I, I thought even in my own experience, there have been things that I knew would have brought me sort of immediate happiness that I sacrificed. Uh, for writing, you know, like it would have made me happier to sleep in an extra hour and a half than it, than it did getting up 90 minutes early to get my writing in before I had to get the kids ready to school and go to the day job. So like in in, in one one regard, you know, th there is a, there is going to be a sacrifice. And uh, and I, I thought it was really refreshing that um, that he put that out there. I mean, here's one of the most prolific, most successful authors in the world. And he's basically saying, like, you're going to have to sacrifice something. Uh, to, to make it work. And I love that honesty. Yeah. I mean, I can, I, I remember being at my day job and, you know, one of my best friends, David would make fun of me. He, you know, when I wouldn't go to lunch with them or go out and one of the things that him and my buddy Kyle used to love to do is like go outside and throw the football around at lunch break. And I was like, I, I, I can't. And I would go like curl up in the backseat of my car where no one would bother me and sit on my laptop. And that was a sacrifice, you know, there, and again, like waking up earlier and going and doing it before the day job. I mean, there was a, a lot of sacrifice to get to the point where I could be full time. And I'm, I know, I'm sure that was the same way for JD. I know it was for Jay. I mean, uh, so yeah, it's just, it's just part of the deal if you really want to do it. Well, just to kind of wrap this up, I think a lot of that drive is, is you know, you're, you're totally in your own head. You're in control of your own ship when you're when you're a full-time writer. There's nobody really standing behind you with the whip, but, you know, the kind of thing you have with a day job, you know, a boss telling you to do this, do that. You know, you're, you're in that room all by yourself, and it's totally up to you to get it done. And I think that's why that, you know, that personal desire to actually just do it, you know, whether it's there's a monetary reward or just a satisfaction of getting a story done at the end, whatever it is that is your driving factor, it, it gets you over that finish line, and that, that's really important. 
important. Um, one of the other things that, that Nicholas brought up that I thought was really cool, he, he said that writing is both a left brain and a right brain thing. And I never really thought about it that way, but it, but it totally is. I mean, because you've got the, the creative side of it, you know, for sure, that's a big portion of it. But, you know, you also need that other side of your brain to actually organize all those thoughts and, and create a roadmap. And, you know, whether you're outlining or plotting it out in your head or just, you know, pantsing it as you go or um, you're, you know, both sides of your brain need to be working on that. They need to know where that, that story is going. That structure needs to be there one way or the other. So I, I thought that was really cool. Yeah, I love that. And and hearing him describe his process, it reminded me a lot of you, J.D. Like, he, you know, he he doesn't sit down and just completely pants, but he doesn't create an outline either. He catalogs all that stuff in his head. And I remember you saying that as well. And and I I think that's, a, again, that's another sort of wedge in this in this false dichotomy of pantser versus plotter where it's like, no, just because you're a pantser doesn't mean you're not prepared. And just because you're a plotter doesn't mean you're not having fun exploring the story. I think it's um, there's a spectrum there. and We're all on it somewhere. Yeah, and I'm really seeing the the benefits of it. I'm I'm working on something new with with Jim right now, and we're just you know we're outlining it, you know, which which we've talked about on the air. Um, but he he called me a couple of days ago and he threw me a curveball, you know, like something that's not in the story, something totally different. And you know, we've got roughly about forty or fifty chapters down in the outline. Um, it took me all of two hours to go through that outline and, and weave his his idea into the the thread and and be done with it and and have it be an integral part of the story. You know, whereas if he would have called me with that same thing, you know, at, at the fifty chapter mark and say, hey, we need to figure out how to get this in there. You know, that's two, three weeks worth of, of work to go back and actually edit a full book and try to work an idea like that in there. So, you know, there, there's a definite benefit there for sure. Um, and we're still getting the fun out of it, you know, which is, I think that that's something I didn't expect. Like, you know, outlining is, you know, like we're, we're having a good time doing that. It, you know, the joy that I normally get with pantsing a novel, we're, we're finding that in the outlining process, which is very cool too. Yeah, I, there, I mean, I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but I, I also, like, that's that's an argument I hear too from, from pantsers who say like, well, it's no fun if I outline. But I think what you just said, JD, validates it, that, that there is fun in exploring it. And for me, um, there's an anticipation in in working towards that scene that I know is coming and I can't wait to write it. And that, that propels me forward because I can't wait to write, I know what's coming. So I think, you know, it's, it's, a, it's mental gymnastics we all do, however it works for you. Um, but uh, it was it was neat to hear Sparks talk about you know wh where he is in sort of a middle ground there. Yeah, another point that he brought up was um, you know, he mentioned he does two thousand words a day and and sticking to that level helps him with pacing, um, and that's something that I've seen over over the years. You know, people that have a certain it doesn't have to be two thousand; it could be five hundred words a day, it could be a thousand, it could be six thousand words. But the people that have a consistent level, their pacing is very consistent with their with their story. They're they're able to control the pacing throughout the story much easier than somebody who's coming in you know on Monday doing five hundred words and six thousand words on Tuesday and eighteen hundred words the next day. Um, their pacing tends to be all over the the board, but the people that are you know steady with that they, they seem to have a really good handle on it I, I, I never really thought about it until he brought it up yeah I think that to me it seems like the key with that is just to figure out I mean everyone has a different um, threshold of what they can do before they're just mentally shot and I think that's where you know you should push yourself to where you know you can get but not try to go so far where you're going to start getting diminishing returns you know so I and, and I could definitely see how knowing your sweet spot will that de could definitely help with your pacing 
yeah, um, you guys were talking also um, about character development, and you know, his, his book is about a 16-year-old girl that's pregnant in what was it, 1996, right? Um, and and he totally nails it in this in this book, and you know that that's that's huge too. And it, you know, one of the things that I've been working on because I, I I feel like character development is something that every author is just always working on. I don't True. think you can ever dial it in and get it just right. Um, but an exercise that I've been working on with a lot of my mentoring students, I have had them pick up um, a short story collection um, by you know Stephen King. We have to mention King. Um, and any collection, but basically go through those short stories, and as he introduces each character, highlight the couple of sentences he uses to to do that. Um, and you're going to find that he basically creates a full-on person, you know, very rounded character within two or three sentences, one paragraph at the most, and you know everything you need to know about that person. Uh, but when you highlight it in a short story collection, you know, and then go back and flip through it, you really see that. And as an author, you can pick it apart and you kind of you know feel that that structure, and it, I think it helps you get a better understanding of how to do that. Um, with Patterson on this latest outline, every single name that we mention, every person that we mention, uh, he won't let me go any further in the outline until I, I, I basically create some type of character sketch for them at the very beginning of the outline. So if I mention Bob Jones, I have to go to the top of that outline. I have to write in Bob Jones. I have to tell you how old he is. I have to tell you what he looks like, everything you need to know about him. And 90% of that won't make it into the novel. But you know, by the time I go back to that outline and actually write his little scene, I know who he is. Um, so little things like that are, are very important. Well, cool. Um, again, you know, this was such a, a fun interview and, you know, someone as prolific as, as Nicholas, very generous with his time and uh, learned a lot from it. Uh, any, any other final takeaways you guys have before we kind of wrap it up for this bonus episode? We should probably mention his latest book. It's called The Wish. It released on September 28th. It's currently number one on the New York Times list and number two on the overall Amazon chart. So it's it's out there. Definitely check it out. Excellent. Also want to give a nice little hat tip shout out to Tia who helped uh, make that interview possible. So appreciate that, Tia. All right. We will be back in your podcast feed if you're listening in real time with uh, the Eric Rickstad episode uh, on Monday. And uh, yeah, we'll see you then. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.